But in any case, our story is in, in Genesis chapter 29 and 30. And we read about a woman who was really used in a profound way in salvation's story. But her own story, her own experience really is lived in the shadows pretty much of obscurity. As I mentioned, her name is Leah. And as I was reading her story, I thought, you know, Leah really is a case study of rejection. And how rejection, if it's left unhealed, it will really show itself up in our lives in, in unhealthy ways and, and in sinful ways. And, and in Leah's life, we see the effects of rejection. And we also learn in a beautiful way how we can seek God for healing and, and what God can really do to bring freedom into our lives. I think every one of us here this morning, I know every one of us here this morning, we have experienced rejection in some way or another. And when I say that word, nothing may come to your mind, but, but there's ways, as we'll see in a few moments, that we actually act out and reveal that there is rejection in our heart. Now, when I talk about rejection this morning, I'm not talking about as if it's an excuse you know, for us to blame other people uh, for some of our choices and for some of our actions. That's our responsibility. But the point is, we all experience rejection. For example, I'm not a clinical psychologist, but, but I think it's pretty common for, for many people here, or for some people here, that maybe you had grown up without the real love or affirmation of one of your parents or both of your parents. Maybe you felt close to one, but never close to the other. It doesn't mean that your parents didn't love you in their own way, but maybe you were just different personalities. You know, that can happen sometimes. You just didn't connect, or maybe they connected more with one of your siblings, and you kind of felt like you were left out of things, or, or maybe you weren't the favored child. Uh, maybe you experienced some kind of abuse as a child, or maybe abused even as an adult or in your marriage relationship. Uh, any of us here this morning ever experienced at any time in our life, growing up or as an adult, where you liked somebody and they didn't like you back? Yeah, maybe, or have you ever had the experience when you were younger when you really liked somebody or dated somebody and they dumped you? That's never happened to me, but actually I think it did once or twice. But, you know, maybe as an adult, you've gone through separation or you've gone through divorce. That's, that's devastating, of course. Uh, you've known the pain as a parent, maybe. I know there's some parents in our congregation. Uh, we experienced my own family of, of knowing the pain of having a child reject you. You love your child. You've raised your child, and they, for some reason, have turned their back on you. I'm not, I'm not talking about Ben and Alex. I'm talking about, I'm talking about my sibling and my family, in case you're, in case you're wondering. Uh, maybe it's work-related. Maybe you were passed on for a position at work or for a raise, or maybe even worse, maybe you were fired from your job. It doesn't really matter how successful you are. It doesn't matter how driven you are. It doesn't matter how accomplished you may be. Every single one of us have been touched by rejection. In fact, there are many people who are very driven, and at the heart, the reason for their drivenness is because of rejection in the past because of this striving somehow to overcome what they've experienced. And again, if rejection is left unhealed, the danger is that it can really shape our attitudes. It can shape our behaviors and, and, and just how we relate to God and how we relate to people. So, so I think rejection is a very important thing to understand. It's a pretty big deal. Again, our story begins in Genesis 29, verse 16 and 17. I'm just going to kind of read through Scripture and just share a couple thoughts. And I hope uh, that you maybe have Scripture. If you have a piece of paper, you can jot it down. Or, of course, you can listen on a podcast later on. Genesis 29, picking up at verse 16. Now Laban had two daughters. 
The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Now, I don't think anybody really knows what weak eyes means. But we do know from the scripture that Rachel had a lovely figure, and she also was beautiful. So whatever weak eyes means, it's probably safe to say it's not a compliment. You've got two sisters. Rachel is the pretty one, and then there's Leah. Leah is Rachel's sister. And maybe you know how that feels this morning. You know what it's like to be the other person. You know, so-and-so's brother, so-and-so's sister. You know, if you grew up in a small town, that's so-and-so's boy. Or so, you know, your identity is always connected to somebody other than yourself. Verse 18, Jacob was in love with Rachel, and he said, I'll work for you, speaking to, to Laban, her father, I'll, I'll work for you for seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than to some other man. That's what my father-in-law said to me. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Isn't that sweet? That's where the girls kind of go, oh, why don't you say that to me? Well, that really sounds wonderful. It's a beautiful story, but you have to ask yourself, how did Rachel feel in that situation? She's the older sister, and let's be honest, it seems like She's the homely sister, right? She's, you know, she's uh, a home, or not as pretty, of course, as her younger sister. And, and her younger sister has won the affection of this handsome cousin, this man, this man Jacob. Verse 21, then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. My time is complete, and I want to make love to her. <laughs> Tell us how you really feel. <laughs> Can you imagine going to your father-in-law, future father-in-law, and saying that? There's got to be something lost here in the translation. This is NIV. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob. Jacob must have been wasted. That's all I can say. Which he probably was. I mean, you know, the wine was flowing, the partying. So anyways, brought her to Jacob. I'm really tired. <laughs> okay. So I might say a few things, okay? They say you can't, you know, yeah. You can't blame a man for what he says in the anointing, okay? So whatever anointing this is, you can't blame me. Okay, when evening came, and by the way, I want to thank the team who's here this morning. You guys are troopers. I mean, you guys traveled all night, all morning, and they said, Pastor Paul, you're preaching, and so we want to be there and support you because we know that you haven't slept. So I'm not going to ask if they're here. I don't pick them up in case they didn't show up after all, but I think most of them are. Oh, there you are, guys. I can see you. They're, the, they're, they're in the... Hey, Dickensia made it. She was totally wasted by me. She said, Pastor, I can't make it this morning. I said, you go home and rest. And here she is. See, shame works. Okay. When evening came, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob. And Jacob made love to her. Right? I want your daughter, Rachel. The seven years is over. I want to make love to her. Leah gets inserted into the tent. He makes love to her. And Laban gave his servant Zilpah to his daughter as her attendant. Now, when you read this story, you kind of wonder, okay, did Leah have any role in this? Now, I know in the tradition of the day, the father made the arrangements. And so I'm sure the father's kind of behind the whole thing. 
But, you know, was Leah like totally innocent? Did he just go along with it? I kind of believe because of the fact that Jacob had been there for seven years, she got to know Jacob really well. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that Leah was probably very fond of Jacob as well. Handsome man, strong, you know, cousin, the wealthy family background. In, in fact, it may not be a stretch to say that she may even have been in love with him. And so she wasn't maybe just kind of following blindly along. Um, she probably had some feelings for her. Or if she did not have feelings for Jacob, it wouldn't be an exaggeration to say that maybe she looked forward to kind of sticking it to her younger sister, right? Who always got the attention, was the pretty one. You know, she just had weak eyes, you know. This is my daughter with weak eyes. This is the beautiful Rachel. This is weak eye over here. You know, I mean, she probably grew up with that, that feeling all the time. So here she has a chance to, to marry this guy who she may have strong feelings for and, again, maybe to kind of show up her sister once and for all. And the reason I say this is because when you read later on in the story, uh, we see that Rachel was not able to give her husband children, and so Rachel gave her servant to, uh, to Jacob to go in with her and to conceive a child, and her, her servant did re, uh, conceive a child. It was the second one by that servant, the child she named him Naphtali. This is in chapter 30, verse 8, and Naphtali means struggle. But listen to what Rachel says with the birth of this son. She says, I have had great struggle with my sister, and I have won. So don't tell me there wasn't some rivalry going on there. And again, probably not an exaggeration that she was kind of glad to get in there and get a hold of Jacob first. I believe it's very possible her heart was involved in this deception. But I also believe it's because, not because she just wanted to upset her sister, I believe that she had the same longings and hopes and desires that every young woman in her culture had. That marriage was not just a matter of tradition, the oldest one being married. And I say that because after she and Jacob are married, we see that from then on for the years to come, she just has this longing for her husband's love, this longing for his affection. And so I just, I don't want to spend too much time on that, but I want us to get a sense that, you know, it wasn't just a matter of, you know, well, you know, uh, Laban wants to get his older daughter married off, and there's nobody else around, and so, well, listen, you just go in there, we're going to trick him, you go ahead and marry, he'll take care of you. I don't believe it was just a matter of that. I believe her heart was involved in that, the longings, the desires that she had, and now she is this man's wife, and she really wants to be his wife, and she really wants to be loved by him. It's just a very natural, normal thing. Uh, for her to desire. Verse 25, when morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Now I want you to imagine for a moment that you are Jacob. You have worked for seven years for this woman. It's gone by quickly because you love her so much. But as he says in, in, in asking the father's permission, he's just longing to be with this woman that he loves. He wants to be with her. He wants to be intimate with her. He wants to make love to her. He wants to hold her. He wants to give himself completely to her. He wants to have her. He wants to build a life together. That's his longing all these years. And when he wakes up in the morning, he sees that it's Leah. Imagine how upset he was. But I also want you to imagine if you were Leah. I mean, despite whatever role she might have played in this deception, 
She has just spent the night with Jacob, who has loved her and made love to her in a way that, we would have, that he would have made love to Rachel. Just imagine. It's dark. He doesn't know it's her. But he's loving. He's intimate. He's passionate. And she feels all of that love and that romance and that tenderness, everything her heart would long for from any man that she could marry. But now she has this man who's her husband. All the passion that is there. That's how he treated Leah that night. And Leah no doubt hoped that after what they had shared that night, that even though she knew that he was going to wake up in the morning, there had to be a part of her that hoped after what we've shared tonight, when he wakes up, maybe he will love me for what we shared. In fact, maybe what we shared was so real and so special, I know it was to me, maybe it was to him, that maybe he'll even forget about Rachel. Or if he still marries Rachel, he'll never forget what we shared, and he will love both of us. I have no doubt that many of those thoughts were probably going in her heart and in her mind and in her longing. But instead, what happens? She wakes up. Jacob sees that it's her. And he's mortified. He's livid. He's angry. He's yelling at her. And he storms out. And she's left there. Probably just with a sheet wrapped around her. And she's all alone. Did you get a sense of the incredible rejection this woman would have felt. All that she felt for him, all that she shared with him, and in an instant, it's just torn out of her. And he's furious with her. And furious, of course, with his father-in-law. Verse 26 to 30. Laban replied, it is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week. Then we will give you the younger one also in return for another year, seven years of work. And Jacob did so. Just, just notice what he says here. He finished the week with Leah. Doesn't that sound cold? He finished the week with Leah. And then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her attendant. Jacob made love to Rachel also, and his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. And he worked for Laban another seven years. I believe it was no surprise, no secret to anybody who knew that family, anybody who'd been to that wedding, they knew that Leah, that Rachel rather, she was the prize. And Leah was just the price tag that came with it. You hear me this morning? And so the fact that she'd gone through all this marriage and everything else, now all the rejection she'd ever felt, all that competition with her younger beautiful sister, it's just magnified a hundred times. Everybody knows her. Everybody knows what is going on. I mean, can you begin to imagine a little bit of the rejection this woman would have been feeling? The scorn, the shame, the loneliness. I mean, it's likely that she always felt like the lesser of the two sisters. And now she's in this shared marriage. And all these feelings, again, are just magnified. And again this morning, maybe you know what that feels like a little bit. 
You know what it's like to be that other person. You know what it's like in your family or maybe in your peer group. You know what it's like maybe to be the homelier one, to grow up being the heavy one, or maybe the dumb one, or the less talented one. Look at verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive, but Rachel remained childless. Interesting. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, It is because the Lord has seen my ministry, my misery, rather. I'm doing pretty well. Oh, sorry. I think it's one of the most significant truths in this story. It is simply this that God sees. Jacob doesn't love her. Rachel resents her, but the scripture says, but God sees her. He sees her. He sees that she is unloved. God sees her crying herself to sleep at night because of the rejection that she feels, knowing that Jacob is in Rachel's bed. Can you imagine that? He's in Rachel's bed tonight. He's loving her like he once loved me that one night. Now Rachel has all of that. God sees her, and I really believe, I know God feels the sting of that rejection. Isaiah 42, the Lord says, He will not crush the weakest reed or put out a flickering candle, but he will bring justice to all who have been wronged. I'm so glad that we serve a God who really understands rejection. We serve a God who doesn't just pat us on the back and sympathize with us. We serve a God who actually empathizes with us. He knows exactly how we feel. The scripture says, of course, that Jesus experienced that same kind of rejection. With the birth of her first child, Leah realizes that God sees her in her misery and that she is not alone. And we need to understand, friends, that God sees us. Whatever reason it might be for our rejection, whatever we're, we're struggling with, whatever the enemy uses sometimes to, to keep us down, I want us to understand this morning that God sees us and he wants us to know that we are not alone. He wants to meet us in our pain and in our sorrow. He wants us to know that he is with us. Now, verse 32 says, She named him Reuben, for she said, Is it because the Lord has seen my ministry? Now, catch this part. Surely my husband will love me now. Isn't that interesting? God sees Leah's pain, her misery, her loneliness, the rejection, and he gives her this beautiful gift, this precious gift of a son. And she names him Reuben because she understands it is God who has given her this precious gift. But the question is, what does she do with this gift? What's her first thought? Here's the gift. Surely my husband will love me now. In other words, she thanks God for the gift that she has. But in seeing the gift, she's thinking, I can use this gift to get what I really need. What my heart really longs for. She sees that, she understands God sees her but she, she gets mixed up as to really the purpose for that gift and knowing what it means for God to see her. And instead, she sees it as an opportunity to get what she really thinks her heart really needs, what she really wants, which, of course, is the love of her husband. 
And because of the way she handles this blessing from God, you see as she continues to move through life, she's still in this black hole of just all this unmet need and unmet desire, and it just never seems to get satisfied. She's still thinking and relating out of this rejection, and she's trying to fill this emotional hole with what she thinks she really needs, and she's convinced that all I need is Jacob's love. And Jacob's affirmation, I'm not criticizing Leah, all of us would have done the same thing. In fact, all of us do the exact same thing. But when we do that same thing, we didn't understand the result is always the same. We try to fill that emptiness of rejection with people and with things and with any kind of success that promises to give us some kind of feeling of significance. But the problem here is that Leah doesn't catch what the real answer is. That the answer for her search for acceptance, the answer for her, her, her sense of success and significance and meaning is found not in her husband, but first and foremost in the relationship with this God who sees her and who loves her. And as we'll see in a moment, has this incredible plan for her. And friends, when we respond to life out of this identity that's rooted in rejection, rather than really rooted in the knowledge that God sees us, then we're always going to be in this black hole. We're always going to wonder why our needs don't feel like they're met, why I always, it's like I need something more, I need to do something more, I need to have something more, be something more. And we may not even realize it, but this rejection makes us so self-focused. And we're self-focused. Self when we are self-focused, like that old song says, we're always looking for love. Say it with me, old folks. In all the... That's a, that's a lot of people know that song. We're looking for love in all the wrong places, aren't we? And we don't even realize sometimes why we're doing it. We're looking for human affirmation. And when we do that, we're hindered from living out of the greatest commandments of Scripture and experiencing the greatest joys that God has for us. Jesus summed it up this way. He said, listen, this is what life is all about. I'm going to give it to you real simple. Love God and love people. That's the essence of life. That's the essence of fulfillment. That's where you find your joy and affirmation. That's where success is. That you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you love other people as you love yourself. You're not using people. But you can love people because you know who you are. You know the God who sees you. But what are some of the evidences that we are living out of this rejection? I know I'm talking this morning, and some are thinking, Pastor, this has nothing to do with me. I, I have no issue with rejection. Well, you may think you don't. And again, I'm not a clinical psychologist, but I can promise you this. If any of these fruit are a part of your psyche, a part of your personhood, then it's because there's rejection in there. And friends, all of us have experienced rejection in some way or another. Let me just give you a few ideas of what those what those things might be. The first fruit I would just call producing. Producing. What did Leah say in verse 32? The Lord has looked upon my affliction. What? Now my husband will love me. 
Verse 33, 34. She conceived again. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, because the, Lord heard that, uh, because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Again she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Now at last my husband will become attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. So she named him Levi. Leah bears three sons. The first son she names because she says, God has seen me. The second son she names because God has heard me. The third son she names because she believes now having three that I'll finally be attached. My husband will be attached to me. What does that mean? It means that Leah is trying to win the love of her husband based upon what she can produce for him. And what she can produce in that culture was babies. And so the question I have for us this morning is this. What is it you are trying to produce to earn somebody's love, to earn the respect, to earn their affirmation, whatever it is that you are longing for, what is it that you are doing? Or, or what is it that you are doing or driving yourself to do or involved in doing so that you can even have this sense of loving yourself or respecting yourself or making yourself feel like, I am important. I do matter. I am successful. Who are you trying to win the approval of based on what you can produce? You're going to find this hard to believe, but for years growing up, I used to use my outgoing personality to win the accolades of others. I used to, win my, used to use my athletic skill. Believe it or not, I had some back then. God gave me a natural ability to engage with people, even though, like Leah, I was pretty average on most other things. I mean, academically, I was an average student. I was like a B-plus student. That's average, right? I was a B-plus student. Some of you are going, well, maybe I was smarter than you, but I was an average student. I slipped out. I'm tired. It was B, I was a B-plus student. I actually skipped grade one. Which, which was kind of wonderful because I was one of the few kids that actually lined up the balloons with the clowns and the peanuts with the squirrels. And you know, I was a brilliant, I guess, so I skipped grade one. We were into grade two, which is kind of nice because I graduated earlier. But the problem was for the rest of my 11 years or whatever it was, 10, 11 years in front of me, I was always the shortest kid. I was always the smallest kid in my class. And so I always had to try to fit in, you know? I, I mean, all the guys were bigger than me. All the girls were bigger than me. They were definitely more mature than me. I was always catching up. I was always the shortest guy in everything I did. I was like four foot 11 till forever, forever. And if Laura Lush is here, I apologize, but that was short for me back then, okay? I, I was a tiny little guy. And so what I would do is I would, I would use my wit, I would use my sense of humor to fit in the crowd. And when it came to athletics, I worked really hard to compete at the highest levels that I could compete in because I wanted to fit into that crowd too. Now, these abilities were not bad. God gave them to me. The problem was that I used them to prove to myself and to others that I was significant, that I was worthwhile, I was worth knowing. I was, oh, there you are, Lord. Zacchaeus, come down. I can say that to the Luscious because I just spent a week with her son and took care of him and he did great. But in any case, so the, the abilities themselves, they weren't bad. 
But the problem was I had used some of these gifts that God had given to me. <laughs> my, my kids are down there. <laughs> I am so politically incorrect with them. I, I give, I've given up a long time ago. But you know what? I still use some of those abilities today because they are gifts that God wants me to use. But here's the key. If I don't deal with rejection, if I don't deal as a man, as a father, as a pastor, as a husband, if I don't deal with the fear of rejection, then I will use the gifts that God has given me as some kind of currency to get what I think I really need. Do you hear me this morning? I'll use what God has given to me rather than depending on him and trusting him and allowing him to use those gifts and in, in my relationship with him and knowing that he is the God who sees me and who hears me and that I'm attached to him. If I don't understand that, I will spoil the very gifts and talents God has given to me, always chasing after people to affirm me, always hoping that I'm good enough and, you know, professional enough, successful enough, whatever it may be, that somehow people who are important to me, that I feel that I have their affirmation and their approval. And you know what? When you do that, you're going to have a whole lot of success on this level, but you'll still be empty inside because no matter how much you accomplish, what accolades you get, what crowds you draw, it doesn't matter. All that really matters is in your heart of heart knowing that the God who made you and loved you says you're my child and I love you and I'm pleased with you. Whether you do that stuff or not, you're my child. That's what John said. Just, just, it's marvelous how much the Father has loved us that we should be called the children of God. And John says, and in case you didn't get it, that's what we are. We are the children of God. It doesn't get any better than that. You don't have to produce to get affirmation from the Lord. A second fruit of rejection is pretending. If we believe the message of rejection, that we are somehow inferior or undesirable, what are we going to do? We're always going to try to hide those parts of us that we don't think are desirable to other people so that we'll look like we're somebody else that we're not really. And that's a really exhausting way to live. Because when you do that, not only are you just a shadow of the person that you're trying to be like, but you never experience the beauty of who God made you to be. And you never get to experience what God would truly do through you if you would just depend on him. The reality is we have no confidence, we have no faith when we're pretending. A third fruit of rejection is withdrawal. You ever heard the expression, once burned, twice shy? That works for most. didn't work for Ben. Ben had this habit as a child. He wasn't tall enough to reach this over, you know, to see over the stove, but he could reach it. And he just loved touching hot burners for some reason. In fact, I think he did it twice in one night. Got his hand all healed up, and back he went. And by that time, you just kind of go, hey, you deserve it. <laughs> you know, medication's over there if you want it. I can't help you. But, um, no, he just did it a couple times. But, you know, the fact is, if, if we're always getting burned by something, let's say we're always getting burned by the stove, what's going to happen? After a while, we're going to wonder if we even need a stove, right? Like, this thing just burns me. Like, what's the use of this thing? It's just there. And the same happens with people, and the same happens with situations, right? Somebody hurts us, or a situation we don't like has hurt us, 
And over time, if we're not careful, if we don't deal with what we're experiencing, what we're feeling, that rejection, what do we do? We begin to actually avoid that particular situation. We avoid even that person, right? I mean, we might have an excuse. We might say, we just don't like them. But the reality is, we're just tired of getting burned by them. And so again, if we're not dealing with this reality, then we end up not doing what God's called us to do. We don't put ourselves into situations or, or with the people that God wants us to touch because we're afraid, again, of, of being rejected. And then a final one is control. Chapter 30, verses 1 to 15. I'm just going to read through quickly. When Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister. So she said to Jacob, Give me children or I'll die. Jacob became angry with her and said, Am I in the place of God who has kept you from having children? I mean, he could have said, Look at your sister, work for her. Problem's not me. Doesn't say that, but I think it's in, the, in between the lines there. She said, Here is Bilhah, my servant. Sleep with her so she can bear children for me, and I too can build a family through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife. Jacob slept with her, and she became pregnant and bore him a son. Then Rachel said, God has vindicated me. He has listened to my plea and given me a son. Because of this, she named him Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, I have had a great struggle with my sister, and I have won. So she named him Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had stopped having children, herself that is, she took her servant Zilpah. <laughs> I'm just trying to imagine poor Jacob. <laughs> Can you uh, anyways, don't go there. It gets funnier as you get on here. Um, gives to the servant uh, Zilpah to Jacob as a wife. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. Then Leah said, what good fortune. So she named him Gad. Notice all these names are about them. You know, it's not about their children's destiny, their son's name for their future and what God has. It's, it's me, 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 me. You know, these two sisters competing. Child after child after child, another name, another name, another name. I win, you win. I got a better one, more victory. Anyway, I, you know, it struck me funny. Leah's servant bore a second son. Uh, how happy am I? The women uh, will call me happy, so she named him happy. Asher. During weed harvest, this is gets interesting. During weed harvest, Reuben went out into the fields and found some mandrake plants, which he brought to his mother Leah. Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, wasn't it enough that you took away my husband? Will you take my son's mandrakes too? Can you imagine the gall? She wants his, her mandrakes. And you're thinking, what in the world do mandrakes have to do with this story? Well, from my understanding, mandrakes were thought to be kind of like an aphrodisiac. They were kind of believed to help with fertility. So here you have these two women who were competing to have kids, so mandrakes were kind of important to them. So they're fighting over who gets the mandrakes. Verse 15 and 16. Wasn't it enough that you took away my servant? Will you take my son's mandrakes too? Very well, Rachel said. He can sleep with you tonight in return for your son's mandrakes. There's a name for that, isn't there? Here's some mandrakes. Take them. So when some guys are going, I'm living in the wrong day. So when Jacob came in from the fields that evening, Leah went out to him. You must sleep with me. This poor guy. She said, I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. You can't write this stuff. So 
He slept with her that night. Okay, now there's a serious point here. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm so tired. <laughs> Leah has gone from this self-pity, kind of like you're feeling for me right now. She's gone from this self-pity, there's an important point here, from self-pity to this control. She makes this shameless arrangement with her sister to buy a night with Jacob, and then she brazenly goes out to Jacob and tells him that he has no choice. He's been hired for the night. And basically, this is her attitude. I really believe this is what she's kind of saying. Jacob, if you're not going to love me, if you're not going to be what I need you to be, then at least I can use you for something else. If you're not going to give me your heart, if you're not going to be what I want you to be, then I'm going to use you for some other reason. And friends, rejection causes us to withdraw in our relationships, to withdraw emotionally, spiritually, in healthy relationships, and instead we begin to use people to further our own ends. If you don't deal with rejection... Wherever its root has been, whether before your marriage or in your marriage, I can promise you, you will always look at your spouse who is there to meet your need, whatever it may be. And you will only give what you have to give, what you want to give, when you want to give it, and you will give it when you want to get what you want. That's not the love Jesus demonstrated. It's not the love Jesus commands us to show one another to put the other before ourselves, to meet their needs before ourselves, to esteem them higher than ourselves. That's not the love of Christ. That's a so-called love that comes out of this sense of rejection. Because of what I feel is lacking, I'm going to use what God has given me, or I'm going to use that person to get what it is to meet my own need. We do it in our interactions with other people, in the workplace, at school, at home. We look at people for what they can add to our life rather than as individuals whom God loves and God wants to use us to enhance their lives. And friends, we can do it in ministry. I see it all the time. We can do what we do in ministry because we like the credit. We like the accolades. We might even do it because we just like doing it. We're fulfilled in doing it. But if we're honest, we're not doing it because we actually love the people and have an interest in seeing them grow and to guide them in their walk with Christ. We can actually use people in ministry to make ourselves look good. In fact, I'm convinced in many a ministry today, that's the driving force behind all the church growth movements, all the strategies, all the stuff that goes on. It's just about how do I look successful? How do I feel affirmed, validated? How do I feel like I've, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm measuring up? It doesn't have so much to do nowadays with whether or not I'm, I'm connected with God, whether or not I'm anointed, whether or not I'm doing what God wants to do. I'm successful in His eyes. It's just, it's just in my, how am I successful compared to this ministry or this person or this event, whatever the case may be. And if you're not careful, even in ministry, you can use people simply to make yourself feel affirmed. None of us are immune to it. I'm going to ask Tanya to come back. At this time, if you would, Tanya, maybe you're here this morning, you can identify with Leah, or as I've been speaking, maybe you can actually feel some of those emotions that Leah felt 
Or maybe you're here this morning and you say, well, Pastor, I can't really, I don't really feel anything when you're talking about Leah. Just kind of a nice story, but I don't know if I can really relate. But if you're honest this morning, if you're really honest with yourself, you can relate to some of the fruit. You see some of that stuff in your own life. You can relate this morning to this pressure of producing. I think all of us can relate sometimes to this pressure of, of being a pretender, not really, really being real, or to withdrawing or disengaging from people or situations to protect yourself, putting that wall up. Or maybe you're here this morning and you may feel like, I've got it all together, I'm perfectly fine. But you realize this morning that you can be very controlling as well. Everything's great as long as you're in control, but begin to lose some control. Relationship, finances, health, whatever, and I panic. I believe Jesus wants to bring some healing and freedom to that area of our lives. He wants us to know that he sees us. He wants you to know how incredibly unique you are. He wants you to know the gifts that he has given to you. He wants you to know that he could give a rip of how anybody else sees you or how you measure up in their eyes. He could care less. He's not impressed by what impresses us, friends. He's not impressed by the people you try to impress. He could care less. Doesn't mean a thing. That's why he wants us to understand, not in a fearful way, but in a thankful way. You know, so often we look at the judgment seat of Christ, the bema seat of Christ, and if you remember the bema seat of Christ, it's just one step. It just means that it's just you and Jesus. And you know, even as Christians in our twisted way, we think of the bema seat as kind of like, well, it's gonna be me in front of the Lord, it's gonna be terrifying. I believe the reason it's one-on-one -on -one is not because he's ready to unload on you. It's one-on-one. -on -one. Because, Deborah, would you come here for a second? It's one-on-one. -on -one because he just wants it to be you and him when he's talking to you. Hey, I'm Deborah, I'm so proud of you. You are so awesome. Man, I, I love you and all the things that you did. I loved your heart for me. You know, it's just, it's that intimacy that he wants us to know and experience in him. Thanks, Deborah. But friends, we've got, to, we've got to recognize that we all deal with rejection. We all have mixed motives for the things that we do. And this morning, I want to encourage us just to allow ourselves to come clean before the Lord and say, Lord, if there's anything I'm doing that is not just out of and for the purpose of just pleasing you, and loving you and knowing that I'm loved by you and living in that relationship. Lord, I just pray you'd show me this morning. Where is it that I'm producing, trying to produce? Where is it that I'm, that I'm just pretending I'm not really being myself because I don't know if people would accept me. I don't know if I'd be enough. And the Lord says, oh, if you would just be yourself, you'd be so amazed by what I would do through you. And it may not even be recognized by people, but you would know that it's me. And we just have this real cool dialogue going on all the time. You know, you'd, see, you'd be doing stuff or touching a life or responding to me, and maybe nobody will notice, but you'll sense in your heart, you'll sense me saying, that was cool. Wasn't that awesome? You go, yeah, Lord, that was awesome. That's a personal relationship. You're not striving anymore or worried anymore about anybody else. You know, I think Leah stumbled onto something really profound with the birth of her fourth son. With the three other boys, you can see their names always reflected that she was just pining for her husband's love. But listen to chapter 29, verse 35. 
Leah conceived again. And when she gave birth to a son, a fourth son, she said, this time I will praise the Lord. And so she named him Judah. Judah means praise. Unfortunately, if you read the rest of the story, you see that Leah didn't stay there. Once Rachel started having children, then she started acting out of this rejection again, and she got all competitive, and the rest of the names of her sons just aren't the same as the name of Judah. But history reveals the even greater story. The fourth son, over whom she declared, this time I will praise the Lord. To realize that is the son to whom is traced the lineage of Jesus Christ. Jesus is traced back. Hear me, friends. He's not traced back to the popular one. He's not traced back to the pretty one, to the loved one, the favorite one. He's traced back to the homely one, to the unloved one, to the overlooked one. Leah is the one who is the mother of the tribe that produces the Savior of the world. And as wonderful as that is, the tragedy is, Leah had no idea how important she was to God and how unique she was to God. That that Messiah would not only sympathize with her, he would empathize with her because he was rejected too. John 1.11 says that Jesus came to his own people and even they rejected him. Hear me this morning, friends. Nobody understands rejection better than Jesus. The Bible wants us to understand that he was perfect in every way and he was rejected, not by perfect people. He was rejected by broken people. He was rejected by the people who should have worshipped him. Jesus understands rejection. And he wants to meet us in the midst of our rejection so that we can experience his acceptance. He wants us to know his acceptance so we can stop striving and stop performing and just enjoy him and just enjoy the unique gifts or abilities that he's given you or passions or longings. I'm going to ask if you just close your eyes. Everyone in the room as we close, just close your eyes. I want to read you two scriptures that I just want to sink into your heart this morning. The Lord said through Jeremiah, he said, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart, and I appointed you. In Ephesians 1, for God chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy, beautiful, blameless in his sight, in love. He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and with his will. Jesus came to set us free from the slavery of rejection. He is our deliverer. I'm going to do a little exercise. I'm going to ask you to keep your eyes closed, and we're done with this. In a moment, we're going to sing that beautiful old chorus in the presence of Jehovah. But as you close your eyes and quiet your heart, I'm just going to say a prayer. And they're going to ask you, as you remain bowed before the Lord, that you would just ask the Lord these questions and allow him to answer you. If you're somebody who takes notes, feel free to jot them down so you remember it. If not, just, just listen quietly to the Holy Spirit.
Lord, I just pray this morning as we close our service that you would show us, Lord, how entangled rejection is in our lives. I pray that by your love and grace this morning, you would show us, identify some of those areas where we see the fruit, that, Lord, there truly would come freedom. We would truly be set free to love you and enjoy you and just be who you've made us to be. Let's just remain bowed, every eye closed. I want you to ask this first question to the Lord. Just say, Lord, how have you demonstrated your love to me? How have you demonstrated to me that you see me? It might just be in some blessing you know God has given to you. It might be at a certain time in your life where you know God just came into the grossness of whatever was there and he, he met with you, whatever it may be. But just ask the Lord, God, how have you demonstrated the fact that you see me? Remind me of that. Just take a moment to think about that. If it comes to your mind, just whisper a thank you to the Lord. Lord, I thank you. I just thank you that you showed me you love me on that day. Oh, I thank you that you showed me that you see me. Just think about it for a second. And now I want you to ask the Lord this question. Lord, what is one area of rejection that you want to show me? What was that situation? What was that person? What was that thought, that lie I believed? Just allow the Lord to show you where you have felt rejection in your life. It could be from your spouse, young, old, doesn't matter. There's a time when you felt that sting of rejection. One, one memory that the Lord would just highlight right now. Just think for a moment. And I just want you to ask the Holy Spirit to show you the lie that Satan planted in your heart at that time. Maybe something somebody said, maybe like Jacob and Leah, somebody just flew into you and lit into you and hurt you. Whatever it was, it could be something simple. But Holy Spirit, I pray right now you just show us what lie we believed from the devil in that moment, what lie we embraced and now we've been living out of that. And I just ask the Holy Spirit to show you what has been the fruit of that. Be really honest for a few moments. Maybe the Lord is trying to show you this is the way, the reason you act this way toward your spouse. This is the currency, the bargaining chips that you've been using. You don't love freely. There's, it's because of this. And it may not even be related to your spouse, but just in some other way that you experience that even younger and you just don't relate properly. Just allow the Holy Spirit to show you what has been the fruit 
of whatever rejection. And then finally this morning, would you just ask the Lord, Lord, what truth do you want me to know to counter that lie? What's the truth about who I am? The truth about how you see me? And Lord, I pray you'd help us to not just mentally see that, feel, feel your truth, your word, of how you truly see us. What's the truth, Lord, about how you see us and how you relate to us? I know it's a lot of questions to remember this morning. But as we're still bowed and we're going to close with this song, I just want you to be honest with yourself and say, Lord, I just confess this morning. I just, I know there's ways that I pretend. I know there's ways I push people away or I avoid situations. I, I know that I really do try to produce, but it's not for the right reasons. I just, it's because of what lacks, because of what I need on a human level. And Lord, if I'm really honest, I know about you, but I really don't get the fact that you see me, that you hear me, and that you're attached to me, and that you love me, and that, Lord, you are enough. And if I can get that relationship right, then all the other relationships can begin to move into balance. And I can begin to bless and minister rather than take and need and, and even push away. I'm just going to sing this song softly. If you know, you can sing along softly. But I would really encourage you just to do business with the Holy Spirit now for another moment or two. But it says, in the presence of Jehovah, troubles vanish, hearts are mended in the presence of the King. Would you just allow the Holy Spirit to do that right now? Would you allow him just to love you, to wash away, expose, and eliminate the enemy's lies to you, to reveal to you the truth of who you really are? You are not the other one in his eyes. You are the only one, the only one. And he is so in love with you. Thank you, Lord Jesus.